in space. It's a Wednesday afternoon, it's two o'clock, and we're here in the studio with my good friend. I'm here with Ewan Semple today. Hi, Ewan. Hi, Sam. And uh, we're going to be talking about tech and buzz and business and stuff that's going on in the industry this week. But we're also going to find out a lot more about Ewan. So, Ewan, who are you and what do you do? Well, I live locally. I live near Amersham, and uh, I'm a writer and consultant who help people grapple with tech and how it's affecting how they work okay and so we're going to be talking a lot more about what you do today but also you know when we go into the segment called lost in space i want to find out where it all began how you got into the industry uh you've been in big corporates you've been in startups you've been self-employed so you've been through the whole gamut um you write a lot which i love reading so uh we're going to talk about some of those topics as well uh, and we'll probably end up talking a little about your favorite songs as well the songs from your journey so before we launch you into space on Elon musk's car we'll find out what your musical tastes like as well but talking of music we're going to kick off with a little musical interlude while we just get settled in um so we're going to have a little bit of bon jovi and living on a prayer and when we come back, we're going to be talking about things like AI. We're going to be talking more about, though, the changing workplace, how employee power is changing the way people tell the boardroom what to do. And uh, I've got a little bit that I want to talk to you and about, about the Apple Watch 4. And we'll be talking about chipping staff. Would you have a chip put into you? I certainly wouldn't, but they are doing that in Sweden at the moment. Anyway, here's Bon Jovi. Back soon.
There we go, a little bit of Bon Jovi living on a prayer. Um, I do like that track. Anyway, we're not here for the music today. Well, we are for when we play Ewan stuff, which, you know, slightly different taste than mine, as we'll see. <laughs> um, Ewan, welcome to Marlow FM. Welcome to Lost in Space. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Enjoying it's a little the heat. bit, yes, a bit warm <laughs> in the studio. Um, so, in the news this week, let's start off with um, McKinsey, the one of the big six consulting firms, is facing an employee rebellion. It seems they uh, they've been asked to drop a contract with America's ICE Department. You know, the internal mm-hmm. group that is dealing with all those, you know, immigrant border control issues that Trump's put in place. Um, Google also similarly had a employee rebellion when they said they don't want any of Google's technology that they're working on to be used for military contracts. Yeah. Uh, Amazon had a similar problem when their employees said they didn't want the Amazon facial recognition software to be used by a local police department. And Microsoft has publicly stated they won't allow AI tech to be used for certain applications when it's related to military or government. So what I find really interesting, though, is is this the beginning of, you know a change in the power balance between employees and the boardroom. What's your thoughts? Yeah, very much so. I mean, and uh, I wrote a book five years ago in which I had a chapter about this saying that if we've lost control or influence over multinationals or large corporations from the outside, if governments are increasingly powerless to control their activities, then the prospect is for staff increasingly, if they have internal networks, if they're able to see what each other's views and thoughts on these issues are, then they can exercise considerable uh, pressure on their companies to do the right thing. But but aren't we seeing zero contract hours? Aren't we mm-hmm. seeing the go, uh, gig economy where fundamentally the worker doesn't have any power anymore? It, it, they are at the beck and call of the, the company that they work for. So, it, it, you know, so we're seeing this shift in, I don't want to do this for you and people mm-hmm. resigning. But equally, at the same point, we're seeing a weakening of power. You know, where, do you th- where does that sit with you? Well, and, and that's in the context of a lot of jobs disappearing over the next 10 or 20 years. You know, the, the promise of AI has been inflated over the last 30 years, but it's increasingly getting smarter faster. And it's hard not to see routine, automa- you know, automatised um, bureaucratic jobs being replaced by technology of some sort. Yeah, well, this week, I mean, in, in the States, at Austin Airport, they announced a robo-barista. Hmm. So, yeah. And it's a high-volume traffic site where people just don't want to chat, they don't want to talk, they just want their coffee in the morning and get going. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of weeks back, we were talking about how there's a burger-flipping robot now who can produce quality consistent burgers at a pace and time required. Well, and it's not just those lower-paid jobs. Um, I was doing a thing in Australia about Workplace of the Future and uh, an audience of about 60 people, and I had the week before seen some chatbots in use in an HR context. And, you know, chatbots are problematic, in the, and again, there's problems with the technology, but they're getting cleverer faster. Yeah. And I asked this audience of about 60 people how many of them would be happier dealing with a chatbot on a daily basis than their current line manager, and more than half the room put their hands up. Really? Why? Mm. Why would they Well, I think that? it's, you know, I think we've all experienced this. We don't need a manager to tell us what to do. We just need a, a, a good answer to a, a, an urgent question, or we need, uh, you know, the odd hand on the tiller, as it, as it were. And you can get that from a system. If you've got clear KPIs in your business and you know what your priorities are, you just need to check in once yeah. in a while. Well, I mean, when I was at Microsoft, it's probably the best company organised-wise that I've worked for mm-hmm. in terms of Bill Gates would tell his country managers what the revenue objectives and business objectives were. 
they divvy it up. They would then come back and talk to their sales directors and marketing directors who then divvy it up. So eventually when it came down to me at the bottom of the tree, you know, lowly systems engineer, I would get my, you need to do 100 demos this month and mm. you need to do 15 customer visits and you need to do X, Y or Z. And so everyone had clear objectives. And mm. so at the end of the month, you were measured and, and against those KPIs for you, which then would roll up into the whole business. And it was, it was the best organized large organization that i've worked for because a lot of the other organizations it was like word of mouth sort of hearsay that's the thing i mean if you've got i mean you know that sort of environment's not ideal for everybody or for every kind of business uh but i think the sort of murkiness that uh, ends up happening around management and managers doesn't help it adds to stress and, and and makes things inefficient very often it's not and just to be clear this is not to say that great managers can make a huge difference it's like it's like great teachers but sadly, they're few and far between. And if you're offered a friction-free alternative for the routine stuff, even maybe part of the time, you can see why it's attractive. But it, it was more the point that I think the, the, the challenge of this next set of changes is that it's going to affect the traditional sort of white-collar knowledge work population. Who So give us an example of who that might be. Well, you know, if, if I'm travelling in the rush hour into London, which I try to avoid, but you know, oh, God, yeah, watching all these, all these folks in their, in their suits and sports. I call office. it cattle class. That's right, exactly. But they're all trooping in and out to large glass and steel offices in the city. Yep. And I'm thinking, what are we going to do with you all in 20 years' time? Because if you're doing the lower end processy stuff around the law or finance or even medicine to some extent... Um, then there's a strong chance that some of that will become automated. And so part of my work in working with uh, people is to pitch the idea that if that's the case, then in some ways they'll have to rediscover the sorts of traits that have been trained out of them. Um, Such as? Give us an example. Having strong opinions, being willing to share them. Now, you you wouldn't have that at all, would you? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's been known. Um, But, you know, and I think that's the the point, that if you've got... uh, bunch of smart people who are working hard to think through the problems that your company's facing. That's a very different population and a different set of management requirements from cannon fodder for, for bureaucratic processes. And, and that, that will diminish, I think, over the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, but, okay, so part of what you do is, is go into large corporates as a consultant and try and give them this digital transformation and a mm. corporate transformation. So what's the pushback? Is it, is it, yeah, that sounds really interesting, Ewan, but come back to us in a few years when we're, we're further down the road. Or is there a, a real uh, propensity right now to go, hmm, that's really interesting, we want to embrace that? It's very varied. I mean, I was just reading a report this morning from Capgemini saying that the whole digital transformation thing is much slower than people expected. And just to be clear, I'm not a fan of that language. Yeah, um, I was going to say, what does digital well, exactly. transformation it's, it's actually mean? It's all over mean? the place. Yeah, I, mean, dig- I read your recent medium post what does digital even yeah. mean you know? you know depending on your background depending on the context it can mean everything from marketing channels to you know tin in a server farm <laughs> an online image yeah or be digital. exactly yeah so, and, uh, and even the transformation bit you know most corporates don't want transformation they just want tinkering and i think there's this uh increasing uneasiness around technology at a senior level where you know they've maybe spent the last few years thinking it's, it's going to go away or my it department handles technology but I think they're beginning to realise that it's it's about life, it's about business, it's about the sort of stuff you were talking about with the employees at those big firms. You know, for me, the phrase tends to mean that it's the power that your customers and your staff now have to talk about what you do, and and you're going to have to grapple with that and and navigate your way through that. So, 
Are you a large... I'm going to sort of self-answer this. The leading question, is it? Yeah. <laughs> are you an advocate of, you know, strong customer voice within a corporate? So come. I find it hard to find a reason for not that, having that. I mean, in, in the sense that, you know, the, the, the businesses rely on customers. And I find it funny, even with some of the retail companies that I've spoken to, you know, they'll say that the customer matters. But all they'll talk about is their own processes and yeah. their own priorities. Yeah, exactly. And you can often tell from a website when it's difficult to navigate or difficult mm. to get through mm-hmm. that it's actually the corporate that's trying to present its inside structure outwardly that's right. rather than out to win. That's right. And know, even some of them, you know, the retail firms, they're struggling, as John Lewis did a few years ago, with the fact that we'll buy stuff online, we'll buy stuff in shops and expect that all to be joined up and integrated in a way that it, it just isn't for most companies. And integrating that is more about culture and silos and behaviours and management than it is about anything to do with technology. And so if we are going to lose all these people to AI, so again, uh, JD.com had a factory in China with 200,000 packages a day being shipped, but only four people mm. working in it. Mm-hmm. The rest of it was automated robots, a bit like Amazon with Kiva when they acquired that. You know... What are we going to do with people? I mean, Yuri Naval, um, in his book Homo Sapiens, or Sapiens it should be, um, called them the great unwanted. And he mm-hmm. said 80% of people in the future will be called the great unwanted. I mean, what do we do? Is there an answer? It could, well, it could go either way. I mean, the optimistic scenario, and it's the one that has seemed to prevail through previous technology revolutions is that we find whole new things to do for each other that we didn't know were needed that weren't valued previously that generate whole new businesses that keep us all busy and is that the goal just to be busy oh well so let let me finish because i think (laughs) i think the um the the scale and the speed of this is such that that's less likely a scenario so you then have people falling back on their own resources and their own sense of self-worth and their own potential to do something with their lives and so for me that's almost the more optimistic scenario because you know let's face it a lot of a lot of us have been conditioned to have the kind of wage slave mentality you get a good job for 40 years you retire um you can it's the dream you devolve responsibility to the grown-ups blah 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 not having that i think in the short term will be will be devastating for for many people i think it will be an existential challenge but the opportunity is to come out the other side of that more thoughtful more aware and also able to do more for each other in a more local you know, the fabric of society has taken a bit of a pasting mm-hmm. over the last few decades. We can rebuild that by having a, a, a potential and, and, and a group potential to do more for each other. Yeah, no, I was, I, I was writing a piece the other day about how, this is over 10 years ago, Sweden started paying corporate companies a tax rebate if they allowed their workers to work from home. And mm-hmm. um, what they realised very quickly was the loss of income revenue from the tax was offset against the reduced travel train uh, and road congestion and and all the other factors Mm -hmm. that lead to it Mm -hmm. and so the bonus upside was these people then started living and working in the community that they live in started buying locally in the shops Mm -hmm. suddenly oh hello you and i'm your neighbor i've not met you because i'm just been a commuter into town you know and suddenly all of that came back so it's it's a model that's existed outside for for a while um i just don't see the uk having any 
propensity to do this, though. Doesn't no. I, can't, I can't see that uh, there's anyone in the government right now, and I think they're too busy with that thing called Brexit, <laughs> um, to even start thinking this way, though. That's the problem. Well, and, and let's face it, a lot of the culture and the norms and the assumptions come from America. And, and that but sort that's of, not even going that well, way. Well, I was either. just going to say it's the wrong direction. I mean, in, in some ways, that kind of attitude be condemned as socialist or, or, or whatever and, yeah. and just vilified and you know they've got a real problem with their with their infrastructure and all sorts of aspects of their society where nobody seems to want to invest in other people and of course the trouble is that we've got uh, in the tech industry a really small group of you know frankly ADD geeks from California who are determining the future of civilization. Yes. And um, the rest of us sort of <clears throat> put our hands up and go I don't I don't, don't do technology you know and that's that's not working. Yeah the, there is a company in the US WordPress uh, mm-hmm. basically, uh, Automatic is the name of the company, obviously. Uh, and they don't have an office. So mm-hmm. they literally have grown this massive, great, big billion-dollar company without a single office. There are good examples if we hunt, but there are one-hand examples. Yeah, but they're also... You know, Zappos are always held up as an example of what's possible. But But each of them has their own lurking dysfunction frankly Uh, or they're working in such a bubble that they're not affected by the normal pressures of other organisations I mean it it, you know fascinates me working with people at the United Nations the World Bank and others like I do where you know the too big to fail mantra pertains and I do find it hard to imagine how we would replace some of those institutions if they did fall apart but I do think that there's a consensus increasingly that, 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 that many of the models that they're working on don't work anymore. And how do we transition? And there's a, there's a sort of gap yeah. between the startups. When they get to a certain size, they start to encounter the same problems that all the incumbents have faced over the years. And likewise, the incumbents have got the ability to deliver and be stable and, and efficient in their own way, um, but can't innovate. And it's, it's that gap in the middle that's, that's interesting. Yeah, the last time we met, we were down at Cooper's chatting. You, you were telling me that HR-wise, companies that are growing fast then start to adopt old-world methodologies for managing yeah. resources. Yeah. So is there a new HR way of managing people? Well, are there companies that are practising something innovative and new out there? Even the fact that you have a dedicated department called HR, I think, is problematic. You know, that I, I call the perils of professionalism. So we, we sort of professionalise HR, we professionalise communications, we professionalise all sorts of other things in the workplace. And that means that other people then stop taking responsibility for them and, and it becomes an end in itself. Um, should, but but equally, if your job is sales, the last thing you want to be dealing with is the remuneration of your staff. You you want to outsource that. Fundamentally, it's outsourcing it, but within your own company rather than outsourcing it outside of the company. But it's also a lack of clarity about what is instrumental in being effective in your jobs. Because um, I agree. I mean, I think. But again, that's something to do with the scale. And if you're managing a team, and you have, as you would as an entrepreneur and you have a proximity to them that allows you to understand their needs and their expectations, whatever else, there's a sort of an intimacy about that that makes it more effective than a call centre or, or yeah. a badly designed yeah. website. Which, let's face it, is how HR ends up a lot of the time these days. So, okay, so let's, let's assume that AI is kicking in. I mean, I've got some great examples we're going to talk about shortly. But this 
uh, automation because AI is mm. just not the right word. I call, I really talk we've got about lots of words smart we've got problems with haven't we? you know <laughs> smart automation. It's just better technology. Really, yeah. it's just the evolution of technology to make it a little bit smarter. Yeah. Um, general AI, which is when the machines think for themselves, is a long, long way off. This yeah. is this is an AI with incremental in, uh, updates. But um, if we are going down this road and we are seeing jobs removed i mean for example me going to london used to be meeting a train ticket person buying a ticket from them car park person paying blah, blah. none of that it's machine all the way through mm. now for me um so well, probably your phone <clears throat> yeah, yeah well yeah. yes exactly yeah. um but if that's the way it's going um what are your thoughts on universal basic income as mm. a model because it seems to be the de-rigger standard answer if 80 percent of the population is going to go and not be in work then in a capitalist model where companies produce goods for people to buy who then get taxed and that model goes back into government and into capital um what happens when 80 percent of the population doesn't work how do we pay for it is ubi the answer and for those who don't know what ubi is universal basic income is basically uh the same as a pension in effect but from when you're 18 onwards a, a lump sum of money that meets your basic human requirement needs well i'm no economist but i think it's also part of a much more uh profound and complex set of changes in, in as much as that engine that's produced economic growth has been at the expense of the planet. You know, we, we just can't have economies that continue to grow at the rate at which they are. Uh, and the basic uh, assumptions that economists have made in the past about the motivation for buying things, that's starting to shift, which is allied with what you were saying earlier about the employees and this different, these different companies. I mean, people are more aware of the consequences of the purchasing decisions. Um, I think the sorts of things, certainly looking at my kids, I've got two daughters, one 17, one 20, their priorities are becoming very different and they're much more aware of the consequences of corporate activity or, or whatever else. So I think there's that whole growing area of scepticism about the world of work and the world of industry and the world of econ the economy generally. Um, but I think it's also a real risk to assume, and it's part of the same thing that we've all, we've all been told that if we just work hard enough and then get time off at the end, that will feel great. But actually, it doesn't because you know. Well, that was a false lie anyway. Totally, and and, and UBI is a sort of a different flavour of the same thing. Yeah, you'll, yeah, you'll be all right. We'll just pay you money to sit at home. Well, I don't actually want to sit at home. You know, mm. I can't do that for very long. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the nineteen twenties was when the pension system came in because when you were sixty-five or were approaching, mm. you weren't going to. There was no safety net. So, mm. the, the the Ponzi scheme, as I like to call it. Mm was basically the young will pay the old to sit at home fundamentally that's what it was you leave work sit at home and have a nice last few years of your life we'll pay for it in national insurance and guess what if that that wheel keeps going round we'll all be happy and that's that's how we paid for yep. it but except we've ended up with massive well, black that, holes that, that in pension schemes yeah. yeah and you know you can't afford it and and pension schemes that are investing into things that seem to be steady and stable aren't finding the returns just so, I mean I think one of the other things that maybe changing is is the assumption that the nation state is the best model for some of this stuff and that's an interesting conversation i've heard a few folks talking about you know the the medieval city states and you know, even down to the fact that london <laughs> muttering L about declaring yeah. independence with brexit was happening, <laughs> london you know? walls going up as we speak <laughs> that's right, exactly. um but in some ways that kind of much more local infrastructure managed things like smart cities 
uh, are be- arguably better managed locally than nationally. Um, if you are able to manage society's ability to be, wor- wor- you know, um, productively employed more locally than you know, the, the things start to shift in that direction. And, you know, I've fallen into the trap all the time of living in the southeast around London and having worked in London for most all my working life. You know, I'll go to a regional centre and wonder, what do they all do around here? Yeah. yeah. But it's nonsense because they're lawyers, they're bakers, they're, they're whatever. You know, they're doing all the stuff that it takes to live and they're doing it locally. So, again, I think we underestimate the strength of local communities to do things like that. Yeah, but I, can I push back on that slightly? Mm. So, obviously, if you go down any high street, a Marlow high street or any high street in the UK, practically anywhere in the Western world, let's say, you know, we're seeing shops closing down, well, we're seeing yeah, Mar- Marlow high, Mar- high Street is not representative. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, you know. Really? Yeah. It, it, what, the whole of the UK is so, not sorry, like Marlow yeah. High Street? <laughs> God, dear, I need to get out my bubble. Yeah, go up to Liverpool. Or whatever. You know, I, mean, I the, do. The, the, no, I go up to Liverpool. because There are Liverpool. so many places that are, are in real uh, trouble. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day that whose ha- father was in the mining industry in South Wales. And, you know, look at places like Kirby or, or wherever that, that still haven't recovered from the departure of the manufacturing But they never industries. will. They, they, well, and, but that's what we're looking at, as I say, for the, the kind of white college knowledge, the white collar knowledge work groups yeah. as well. So that's a big dent. In, but we are uh, seeing society. the closure of call centres. I mean, you know, when we were back in the internet in the 1990s, when I was at Netscape, you know, I remember um, Amazon first launching and Amazon basically had call centres because people weren't comfortable putting their credit card to a machine. Mm-hmm. You know, that level of trust, as we call it. And now, you know, everyone, well, was it over 100 million people in America are on Prime? I mean, I think it's 10% of the UK are on Prime. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, it's one-click payments, delivery. So the call centres are going because there isn't a need for the human to provide that trust mm-hmm. level in between. And strangely, it was the Scottish voice that was considered trustworthy. Yeah, and the, if, you, if you could understand it. Yeah. Pardon? If you, <laughs> <laughs> Got me. Um, and, you know, so that that's where I think, you know, we, we are... So going back to UBI, it, 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 I struggle with it because... It's just creating a capitalist system mm. that doesn't really have a, a, a means to an end anymore. And persisting a dependency, you know, continuing a dependency, which is not healthy. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, though, is, is are we beginning to see a new capitalism? Uh, and, and I mention that because Starbucks this week vowed vow to eliminate plastic straws, and so did uh, San Francisco. I know that in London we're starting to do things mm. and, and local shops are beginning to get rid of them. But straws on its own just seems like such a tick box, you know, yeah, corporate thing. Oh, look, that's the de rigueur flavour this week. Let's just put a press release out that says we're going to stop straws. But Yeah, but we're, we're, I think what we're seeing is people starting to flex their muscles. And, uh, you know, the silent hand never really worked because there was no platform on which it could. You know, the, the idea that the market market would be regulated by the customers has never really kicked in. But I think now it can, and that's what we're seeing. And, and, and the power that customers have to find each other on the internet, talk to each other on the internet, and put some severe dents in some corporate... Um, yeah, I, I, again, I think that there's... You know, one of the things I'm very big on, uh, or, you know, certainly with my children, is finding ethical clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there are some really good shops now that are printing the amount of water they use within the production yeah. of cotton um, and the amount of miles that travelled mm-hmm. and all those things that, are, you know, are there. Right. Um, but I think that's like 1% of companies because there isn't really that, that pushback. I mean, no, but it's, but it's growing, Sam. I mean, I think, again, people... I still think we're at the start of this. 
you know. Oh no, I agree. We are. I, I think we've really just begun to explore the power of the networks and the and the, the the power it gives us. And but you watch even things like Facebook is beginning to mature. You know, there are there are less pictures of cats and more conversations about stuff that, that that matters. And I'm you know half full sort of guy, and I think we will work out how to make the best use of these tools in order to collectively work out what to do about our problems. And I think we're just beginning to see the start of that. Okay, so the last thing I wanted to talk about in this segment before we take a little break is um, the role of CEOs recently. Um, This week, Papa John removed images of its founder from its marketing after he admitted to using the N-word during a conference call. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, I think, wasn't the reason they did it. It was because they started to see, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, The city of Louisville in Kentucky removed Papa John's name from its football stadium and renamed itself the Cardinal Stadium, uh, and others have started to take Papa John off from their roster. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, it, it is you know, and we had the same with Netflix. The CFO was immediately removed when he used the N word, uh, and strangely, when we'll see what the fallout of this one is, Elon Musk called the British rescue diver who you know thought his submarine idea of getting the children out of the cave was rubbish, and he tweeted he called him a pedo. Mm-hmm. You know. How how's Elon going to get away without <laughs> one? And, you know, given that Papa John has has yeah. been you know retired. Well, and look, look at look at Uber bumping along on the bottom with their staff relations, and well, they well, removed it, their CEO at least. It sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about trusting the future of civilization to a very small group of very privileged people in a very mm. small part of the world with a particular context and set of values. And those values are beginning to be seen to be questionable in many cases. And I think it's about the legislature, uh, the politicians, keeping up with those challenges and making it, making laws and processes and policies applicable to that environment that it keeps it in some kind of control, because at the moment it, it's not. Yeah, but I think... There's a good book I was reading about, you know, in the, if you think of concentric rings, in the middle is a startup running really, really fast, changing, yep. breaking things, moving. Then you come further out and there's other concentric rings that are mature markets. And right on the edge is government. Mm-hmm. And government is slow to move, slow to change, slow to take on board. I mean, GDPR was 10 years in the making, I think, from when it was first mooted. Yeah. You know, and I, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying we need more or more heavyweight government, but I do think we need a place, platform to discuss right and wrong, frankly. Uh, I mean, I wrote a post recently I called The Ideology of Algorithms, and it's the fact that if we're going to design systems, build code into things, black box AI that, you know, we don't really know what it's doing until 10 years later, we need to be clear about the ideological framework we're using to design those things because they can't be neutral. No. You know, every algorithm's got a context, a set of priorities, uh, a slant of some kind. And as I say, it needs more people in regulated or legal positions to be more savvy about the technology world so that they can start to exert more influence. I mean, even at the level of my, you know, my daughter's at, at Cambridge, and I was with some Cambridge investors recently, and I said, do they ever get the humanities students together with the technology students? Of course they don't. No. I said, well, that'd be a really good idea, because then the humanities students might say, you know, guys, that's not a really good idea for civilization. But techies don't want to listen to that. That's right. Now, and, I, and I sort of get your point, which I think you're making, that you need the energy and the drive and in some ways the naive belief that brings about some of the technical innovation. But the trouble is we kind of just leave them to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, so I want to come back to that part you're talking about algorithms because that's, that's a really good topic. But um, going back to Elon just for two seconds, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I don't think he had a bad uh, idea 
a bad wish. He was trying to use his muscle and his, his intellect to try and find a technical solution to get those kids out. But it went back to the human solution. Mm-hmm. But without Elon Musk, I don't think we'd be seeing electric cars coming out because he invested heavily mm-hmm. in, in, in his belief. Uh, I certainly am investing into the Elon Musk um, tiles, solar tiles mm-hmm. are coming out in the UK next year. You know, and the electrical yeah. power packs, and then hopefully, you know, a Tesla three. So I'm trying to get off grid, remove, remove my f- digital footprint or my carbon footprint. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has got those elements to him that make well, it. And this this goes back to the thing about organisations as well, because you don't, you know, there's a terrible homogeneity about organisations. It's assumed that if it, that they will work better if everybody's the same, and nobody causes waves or sticks. Mm. Or, you know, but again, that's not true. I mean, you need the troublemakers for want of a better word you want the ones who break the mold because the mold's no, not working rid of me you know? most of the time <laughs> yeah well me too <laughs> but um you know that's that's the constant challenge that balance between people who you know in order to get innovation you have to admit that what you have now isn't working and there's a lot of pressure not to say that yeah so let's move back to that uh, algorithm conversation because that works into the type of person you have within the organization mm-hmm. so you know google has a bro culture and they're trying to break it but easily the white young male bro culture of you know we know what's best university out into the privileged world um and they're the guys developing the algorithms i mean we were talking off air before we came on about, you know, you're somebody who I've tagged as a, a close friend on Facebook, and yet I see probably one-tenth of what you put out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's only if I go to your feed and actually make a conscious effort to look down your feed, I go, wow, I didn't know that, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Now, they are making subjective choices on my behalf yeah. that I have no understanding of, but that's their crown jewel. They're not going to reveal the algorithm and equally nor is google going to reveal the algorithm so so if these algorithms are being built with people who may have they don't i'm not saying they do but let's say they might have racist sexist homophobic whatever then how do we balance that because what we're building in is those uh what do we call it um basically those biases uh, yeah yeah, directly into it. So, mm. And even if they're less extreme than that, they still have an effect. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, again, another area of the algorithm that worries me. Actually, by the way, there's a brilliant uh, lecturer in September the 11th on the How To Academy in London, a girl called Hannah Fry I'm going to see, and she's talking about her book on algorithms, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend going to. But um, again, with the algorithms, the film iRobot, you know, where Will Smith's in the water and the robot's making the subjective choice to ch- save Will Smith and not the young girl. Yeah. You know, the, the algorithm that's are, that are being built into cars now, you know, do I smash in on an accident to 10 children or one granny? How are we it's seeing that being... Controlling car problem, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, and... and <clears throat> you just need to watch a few black mirrors to realise how, <laughs> how, how badly wrong it can yes. go. Um, and, and, you know, I would be foolish to start suggesting simple or obvious answers. I think it's heartening that the government, for instance, are beginning to organise groups around ethics on, on AI and medicine particularly. Um, people who've got a grasp of conventional medicine and its priorities, but also of the new technologies. I think that's really important. Um, I think scepticism on the part of individuals as well, you know, that that just because Facebook's prioritising it or Google has 
brought it up on a search result, that doesn't mean it's the truth. You know, I remember somebody saying, if you want to kill somebody and get away with it, hide the body on the second page of Google search results because nobody will ever find it. No. Or, or, or put them into space like Elon Musk did oh, yeah. in a suit. But, you know, be, be, being aware of that and contextualising the information you're being given, I think is increasingly important. Which goes back to what we were saying earlier, the skills that you will yeah. need going forward are not the memory skills we used to have, but these because go- we can Google anything, we can find what we think the answer is, and it's now, as you say, uh, providing a critical eye over it. That's right. Is it fake news? Is it real news? Is it in the context? Um, again, one of the other hardest things, and I do try, but I'm not very good at, is to get outside of my belief bubble mm-hmm. you know so i end up being a democratic liberal you know non-religious uh, type person mm-hmm. and i tend to follow people <laughs> strangely who reinforce that that's my view of the world yeah. but I, I occasionally flip over to the dark side as i call it and try and see what the right wing fox news and i have to say it's frightening it's a different parallel universe isn't it, it is yeah. and i i think it was it was the trump visit with the queen and uh it popped into Facebook, you know, the video, and it's the Daily Mail, which I hate, but the Daily Mail video came up, so I thought, okay, I'll watch a bit of this. And the comment stream... You didn't was, look at the comments. Oh, <laughs> my Lord, it made YouTube comments look insane. I mean... But that's partly why Trump and Brexit happened. Yes. Because, because there was too big a gap between the different elements of society. We'd, we'd, we'd polarised in ways that were very unhealthy. So, you know, I was in the States last week, and I wrote a post about the fact that, you know, watch, and it was with uh, work in business school and watching, you know, above averagely smart Americans bruised and confused by all that's happening, but grappling with it. And it, I felt that they were grappling with things that possibly they should have been thinking harder about for the last 10 or 15 years. But the, the extreme circumstance they now find themselves in is forcing them to look at these things. And that, and that in the long run is not a bad thing. Yeah, but this takes us back to the UBI conversation, to the great unwanted, mm-hmm. to automation and robotics. So if you can step back from it, you know, and look at it at the 50,000 feet view, I tend to see what we're seeing now, the early days of Brexit and Trump and the populist right in Italy and in Turkey and other countries, is fundamentally people saying, I've got nothing left. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm at the bottom of the heap. Well, we're, we're coming to the end... You know, that article I wrote that I, I mentioned that, that I talked about the isms running out of steam, you know, capitalism and socialism are both from a different era. They're, mm. they're, they're running out of uh, relevance. And we don't have an alternative, overarching, sense-making story. Um, and in the, in the article, I sort of mischievously suggested we might get AI to write it. So, <laughs> so if, if AI watches us all in our behaviours and what causes <clears throat> friction or tension, and you don't want to eliminate friction totally because you want a bit of a challenge but just get ai to come up with a set of rules that sort of work we'll go yep okay that'll do yeah no i look i i struggle this so what i (laughs) what i fundamentally think we're seeing is this beginning of this uh great unwanted Mm -hmm. and i think you know okay it's not going to be ai but but we're looking for the next canes the next marks the next whatever hopefully they're not next hitler but 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 we might get it. <laughs> well, I think we've got it. Forget we might get it. I think we've got it. Yeah. Uh, I would or wouldn't. Who knows? Um, uh, but that said and done, if we are seeing this change, you know, and we are seeing the divide, I can't see how we repair this divide. Well, okay, and so I don't want to get into a Brexit conversation. No, no, but just, 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 just <clears> the same. You know, when you were saying about Marx or Hitler or whatever, those were different times. And I'm not sure we we would do that, would ever do that again. We could ever have one person with that amount of disproportionate effect. 
And so the, the you know I read a lot about anarchism and the history of that and how that was originally the the idea of not deferring to hierarchy unless absolutely necessary. And in fact, Marx was an authoritarian, and there was a lot of fighting within the left uh, against him because of that. And I think once we get networks. And it's a big leap in human faith and, and believing in people. But when we have networks of aut- autonomous, intelligent, tolerant people who talk to each other but working stuff out, you get over the sort of hero, heroic leadership, dominant ideology mentality. You sort of lose those stories. Those stories don't matter so much. You can work things out more locally and more uh, collectively. Yeah, well, th- this, this leads me on to where I think Parliament 2.0 needs to be invented. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we, we we're watching them struggle with Brexit, yeah. and and yet I think to myself, I've got a phone. You know, if you watch X Factor or any program like that, you know, I hear you're a big Love Island oh, yeah, fan yeah. now. Funnily enough, that passed through my head as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been sucked in by your girls. I, I've avoided it so far, but yeah. you know, give up. <laughs> I'm trying not to. I need some sanity. I can't afford it, actually. You know why? Because I, I created a drinking game where every time they say like, I have to oh, drink. I drunk after about 10 <laughs> what minutes. What is doing to the English language? It's oh, my word. Distressing. Um, but that said and done, um, Parliament but, did... Actually, on. sorry, not uh, just... <laughs> go on, no, no. At risk of making everything I've said up until now totally invalid, there's more to Love Island than you expect. Really? In go that, on. it's just watching people and relationships and... The goodness in people, and and the lads in there particularly are just they're they're you can watch them just totally bemused when the girls run rings around them sometimes. Yes. You know they're desperately trying to do the right thing, and they kind of know they're on national telly. There's all these people watching them making a complete jump of themselves. You know, but there's a fascination about that, and that that's how culture emerges. That's how norms emerge. But is it? Big Brother over them, and that their it's awareness means very, that yes, puts it, yeah. that. It's it's a midpoint. Because I think if there wasn't a camera watching them, I don't, uh, their behaviour would be fundamentally different. The whole editing process is incredibly yeah. problematic. And I, as I say, I think we're in a midpoint between old-style media, where it just gave you what was good for you and, and pumped stuff at you, to a greater sense of engagement by the public, including the participants in these shows. But yes, I think that, that me- intermediation will increasingly diminish as well. You know, yeah. Again, watching my kids watching YouTube and... and some of the YouTube conversations and the YouTubers themselves before they get dragged into the media world and, and go wrong and get tainted in the early state, like early days of blogging. That was just a bunch of people working stuff out, sharing. I it with miss each those other. days. I, I, I really miss people just having an RSS reader, but then, yeah. hey, I'm just that old school boy. <laughs> if you can't work out how to use RSS, you shouldn't be on the internet. Exactly. What does it stand for? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so two, two things going through my head as we're talking there. One is, Love Island outside in the real world. I mean, you know, it's well aware that in technology terms, Britain is the most over uh, camera mm-hmm. scrutinised. I think five cameras for every person in this country. Crazy, mm-hmm. you know. Every time more more cameras than pubs um, watching us, so we don't know but where we, we buy our own <coughs> and share them on the internet. They don't even need to well, buy the cameras yeah. anymore. Yes, I should admit I've got six around the house. Yeah. But that's that's <laughs> another conversation. Um, Taking that to an extreme in a country where democracy doesn't actually mm. have a strong leaning is China. 
mm-hmm. and you, you've heard of the social score that they've created mm-hmm. around you know you know so you have a social score like your uh, like your financial score and if you do bad things your social score goes down you can't go on certain yeah, trains but, you can't but, do certain but, things but. so I, one of the guys I was chatting to in the states is a friend of mine Kevin Warbach who ran some great conferences back in the day in Palo Alto and he was on Obama's tech group whatever really really smart guy Does, teaches uh, law and ethics and we were talking about China and how it will become the dominant force in technology is already becoming yeah, the dominant their force their AI is, is that's right far faster and I was with a bunch of geeks doing stuff around identity and uh, blockchain. A uh, really, really good day. It's it restored, restored my confidence that blockchain will do something interesting and useful at some point. But I'm still not with you there yet. Yeah, well, we can talk about that in a minute. But um, one of them sort of wistfully said, you know, this would be so much easier if we were just in China and you could barcode your citizens. And, and we got into that conversation around, you know, they've just cancelled the order for 24 coal-fired power stations because they want to become greener. You try doing that in a liberal democracy where the politics are, put, are paid for by industry interest. You know, in, in some ways, but I've, I've another friend who lives in rural China, so not in the cities, and he was saying for all the external perceptions and the yes, there are things that we'd rather didn't happen, he said society sort of works. Yeah, well, I mean, I cycled around China with Jill, my wife. We went, we went from Guangzhou in the south all the way up to Beijing in the north. Um, and it was it was, a you know, obviously... For two reasons, we had a guide. One, we weren't allowed to go off the beaten track, but two, I can't read Chinese signs and would have been lost within a day. Um, but outside of that, and this was 97, I c- compared it to India. I was saying right. to Jill, my wife, you know, in India, when we visited India, you know, th- th- there's multiple rich and massive poor and, you know, poverty all the way around and mm-hmm. roads that didn't work and cows all over it and there was chaos, right? And out of that chaos was a, a modicum of... Uh, a society that had adjusted to that chaos. Whereas in China, when we went there, it was very clearly an organised, structured society. Now, you might say that's because there is a straitjacket around mm. everybody and, you know, they, they, they aren't free to think and do, maybe, and I couldn't tell what, you that. What, what price freedom? You know, seriously, what price freedom? I mean, when we're looking at things like UBI, the industrial complex trundling over the fabric of society, you know, we're not showing a shining example at the moment. And, so is uh, China the new model that we should well, be adopting? Well, I'm not saying that that's necessarily, you know, if you just slavishly follow China, it will all be all right. But it's just to sort of slightly weaken the idea that we're leading. Any, you know, when people talk about the digital divide, you know, I often ask which side they think they're on. Um, because, you know, African countries, their use of mobile telephony mm-hmm. is just eclipsing us and they're, they're leaping over all sorts of institutional hurdles that we're still grappling with. Um, so I think I think complacency is one of our biggest challenges at the moment yeah i mean would i give up elements of my freedom? but i feel i'm already giving up elements of my freedom yeah, I mean, that's right well right. i remember but you know back to my radio days it's funny sitting in a radio studio because i worked for the world service for for a long time as a sound engineer and so i got to listen to you know fantastically clever people talk about the world and the way it was developing uh, including some in the russian service don't understand russian but just talking to them and talking about the issues and the politics and i remember finding myself thinking that you know they do propaganda um, but at least they're honest about it. <laughs> in a, in a okay. And Hollywood does propaganda too, but it pretends it's not. Okay, I don't think we're going to put the world to rights <laughs> here today. So um, I think we've, we've, we've covered a lot of what's gone on in the news. Uh, a couple other bits of positive AI. Let's, let's look at it or that. Um, there's a new powered garbage bin that you can get on, uh, well, it's a Kickstarter at the moment. It's, for, it's called Oscar. Um, basically, as you uh, open the lid... 
and you scan what's on the barcode, it'll tell you whether to put it in the recycled or not. So, mm. again, AI working out what we can put in the trash. Um, there is also an AI system that's come out this week from uh, MIT that reduces the noise on photos. You know, so if you've got mm-hmm. grainy old photos, they can make them nice and shiny and sharp. Well, there's already so, computing going on, so much computing going on in our photography these days. It's yeah, I mean, so yeah. there are good things. Um, Facebook, Twitter and Google are using AI to protect social media users. So they're... Facebook uses it outside resources like on Botify, an Israeli startup, to detect bots as opposed to humans by their behavioural analysis. Um, and you've then got uh, AI to spot fake user accounts, and Google's using a tool called Perspective on its social media site, YouTube, to moderate comments. So there are good things there, but that last one worries me. Well, define good. Uh, well, that last one worries me because yeah. that goes back to the algorithm right. that is cr- right. your comment may be filtered out because it's not That's in right. line with the th- right thinking. As, as it's the old truism about the you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Yeah, well, Palestine, Israel. Um, yeah. Let's not get into no. that one today. <laughs> let's open lots of kind right, of worms. Well, and there's, there's been a great, it's been a great week of news. Uh, lots of other things to talk about. Uh, Minis that are now announcing electric cars. We haven't even talked about that yet. Uh, and we haven't talked about a lot of little things that I wanted to talk about. One was chipping of staff, you know, how we how we allow that. But I think we're going to... You might want to explain what that is. Oh, well, this is putting a chip inside of a human so that they can track you and, and see your behaviour. But they sell it on the idea of it will automatically open that door for you as you walk around right. the office. I'll take my chances with the door and just <laughs> forget the chip. <laughs> yeah, I'll use an Alexa and just say, door open, please. Um, OK, we're going to have a li- little bit more music, I think, just to, to break it up. And when we come back, um, we're going to have uh, a... Walk, walk down memory lane for you in here and find out where he was born. I think we might guess it's Scotland, but outside of that. Um, and then just find out a little bit how he came to be doing what he does today. But in between that, we're going to have a little bit of Bruno. Bruno Mars, one of my favourite singers. He was in Hyde Park this weekend. Ha. Ah.
Lost in Space. We've had a little ramble about what's been going on in the world, uh, putting the world to rights, as I say, but I, I'd like to find out a little bit more about you now, Ewan. I think we're going to have to go back in time. I'm not going to say how far back in time. <laughs> so, for those who are just joining, can you just remind people, what do you do today? Yep, well, nowadays I'm a writer, speaker and consultant on the impact that technology has on society generally, but mostly how we work. Okay, and so let's start at the beginning, as they say. Where did it all start for you? Where, where were you born? Uh, well, my parents lived in a small, well, not small, a new town called East Kilbride, just south of Glasgow. I was actually born in a Glasgow hospital, but uh, yep, East Kilbride was my hometown at the time. It's good to see you haven't lost the accent. It's softened. Uh, does it get harder as oh, you yeah. go back I up? Mean, I, I was <laughs> speaking at a panel at a conference recently and there was another Scot and we had to agree beforehand to be very, very careful because we would both become <laughs> Rabsy Nisbet after about 10 minutes. Uh, we were talking about the, the, the fact that the Alexa didn't understand Scottish. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, you know, we, we have the Turing test for the consciousness of computing. I think we should have a, a, a Rabsy Nisbet test for its ability to understand languages. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, happy childhood. Yeah. I wouldn't say otherwise, would I? I was going to say, <laughs> I'm thinking, no, I was beaten to a pulp. My mum's not listening. <laughs> yeah. No, very. Yeah, very. Siblings? Um, uh, one sister, younger sister. And um, what does she do? Uh, she do- manages uh, pharmaceutical research at the moment. Um, okay. So, uh, you grew up... Uh, so the first track we're going to play, yeah. you know, when I say <laughs> that's debatable, some people would argue. Yeah, about so, it, yeah, and best not to grow up. But you were saying, you know, this first track we're going to play called "Speed King." Mm. Tell me about why you want to play this first track and what it has to do with your your growing up, as I said. Well, my my, my father bought a motorbike because of the fuel crisis in the seventies, and uh, that got us on a path which ended up with both of us having uh, fast motorbikes. And uh, he he rode his up until his eightieth year, actually. And uh, but we used to go to watch. The Speedway in uh, Hamden Stadium, and uh, they played Speed King over the Tannoy during the, the interval. And do they still have Speedway there? I have no idea, frankly. I haven't kept across that. I mean, Speedway's still, uh, you know, it was not as big as it used to be, I don't no, think. No, it used but, to be yeah. on World of Sport. That's right, Davis. exactly, it did, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sadly, I Ivan Major, I remember from New Zealand and all those guys, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was still never allowed to have a bike. Anyway, look, <laughs> we're going to play a bit of uh, Speed King from Deep Purple just to uh, get us warmed up, and when we come back, we're going to find out what you did at university. Oh no. Oh yes, oh yes. Any ex-girlfriends, stop listening now.
Deep Purple there, speaking. <coughs> As most people know, not my my uh, <laughs> personal cup of tea. I think snow not, not mine these days as well. I oh, have come on. <laughs> With that long hair of yours, yes. Yeah, so I... Did you have long hair then? No. No? No. Did you have flares? I did, and platform shoes as well. Yeah, you were a Bay City Roller fan, really. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, so... It's the 12-year-old Ewan. Let's fast-forward you up into university. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you do? Where did you go? I went to St Andrews, and as I say on my Facebook profile, I studied drinking. Absolutely rather wonderful. Rather than uh, English language and literature, <laughs> as I was meant to be. Um, which is ironic, because I now read books about poetry and grammar all the time, because I love language and getting better at writing concisely and getting ideas across accurately. But no, I had a very different set of priorities at university. And uh, can we ask what you got? A third. A third. And uh, Bright, Brighthead Revisited was on at the time, and uh, they had this saying about don't get a second, get a first or a third, either work hard or play hard. Um, nice. My mum was kind enough to say, you must have had a really good time, son. So I yes, one. yes. My wife got a Desmond Tutu. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't go to university. I went to Santa, so totally different yeah, world. Yeah. Um, but I've got a deal with my daughter who's going to university, so uh, if she gets the first, I will pay her bill for Gosh. her tutoring i hope my daughter's not listening to because <laughs> she's looking like she might uh and if she gets a 2-1 we go yeah. halves if she right. gets a 2-2 two, two, it's all hers Gosh, so right. and a third i'm not even talking to her <laughs> <laughs> uh but so um you, you were saying off air you, you also did a lot of music yes i mean I, I played clarinet through school and then uh studied music part of the time at university but ended up playing in a band, uh, playing sax. And uh, for the two years after I left university, I played in bands in working men's clubs, minors' welfare clubs around industrial Lanarkshire, which was a very formative part of my education. And so this next song, Take Five, from Dave Brubeck. Well, that's, that yes, that's a different, different musical direction altogether. <laughs> but that was uh, my dad had an old uh, single of that from when it came out originally. And that was my first real encounter with jazz. And I, I love jazz, I've always loved jazz, but I was never good enough at playing it. Uh, to play in a jazz band, so my, my musical tastes were a bit simpler at the time. Okay, so let's take a walk down memory lane. Vinyl was this, I guess. It was indeed. Bakelite, I think. <laughs> Bakelite. <laughs> okay, this is uh, Dave Brubeck and Take Five. Thank you. 
we go. A bit of Dave Brubeck in take five. I actually remember that one, strangely. <laughs> I do remember it. Um, so, uh, you're now a teenager, mm-hmm. uh, pre-work. What happened after uni? Uh, well, after university, uh, as I said, I played in a band for a couple of years. Um, got, got, you know, I got into music, pop music of different types at that time, I guess. Um a really big fan of people like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and, uh, and Pink Floyd and uh, used to listen at a little sort of um, turntable in my room and would listen with headphones on lights out intently to, you know, shine a new crazy diamond or dark side of the moon or whatever. Well, I mean, if you, if you not that you can, but if you get on your car after this show, it's mm-hmm. afternoon gold, which is the 70s, the whole 70s. Oh, really? So right. I have no idea what Andy's going to be playing, but it's all of that era, I think. Right. Yeah. So, um, so Pink Floyd was your big big thing was mm-hmm. it yeah and then when we were playing in bands it was around the new romantic era so oh. it was all how does that how does that work so you played what style in your band then that so we, yeah we were playing haircut 100 uh oh nick who lives du- around here yeah. oh really yeah 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 duran duran all that sort of stuff and <laughs> just sorry i'm just having a moment i'm looking at you and thinking <laughs> don't be unkind <laughs> No, I'm not being unkind. There was one time, you know, because all, all the rage at the time was the whole sort of neuromantic look. Right. And one time we decided it would be cool to spray colour on our hair. I want you to post it on and Facebook. I, and I, well, I mis- misjudged it and sprayed this red dye into my ear and it looked like somebody shot me in the side of my head. <laughs> that wasn't quite the effect I was looking for. Uh, okay, so let's start off with, where did you? how did you come down south? Who did you start working for? Where, what was all that about? Well, after a couple of years of playing in bands, I realised that I really didn't want to be doing this when I was 40 because that was the oldest I could imagine being at that time and uh, decided to come down to London speculatively stayed with a friend of mine from St Andrews who worked at the BBC and she worked in a department called Programme Planning who needed some uh, administrative help photocopying planning sheets so I got that job and then left 21 years later as a senior manager so uh, okay so let's talk a little bit about because that's a 21 year whoosh <laughs> um, I mean, where, where did you go within the BBC? You know, um, highlights, memories, good things. Yeah, I had a couple of years in program planning, and then uh, I was sta- shared a flat with a, an HR lady who sat me down and said, "What did I think I was good at?" And through working in bands, playing in bands as a sax player, you need to, you know, you're dependent on the PA for your sound. Um, so I ended up having to get involved in making sure that the desk was set up properly. So I ended up being a studio manager, as we called it, but a sound engineer, basically, for World Service Radio. I did that for 10 years, got to work with people like Chief Boutelazy and Paul McCartney and all sorts. And, and uh, Tim, who started out... And indeed, Tim was a colleague at the time. That's he started right. Mono FM. That's yeah, right. And so. uh, I still look back very affectionately on that time. And there was a great buzz about doing... You know, we, were, we had millions of people, hundreds of millions of people listening to some of the broadcasts. And... We used to joke that you became senior by being too stupid to run away when anybody with any sense <laughs> would do, you know. And uh, but I still miss that adrenaline of it's like a performance. It's like being a musician. You've just got uh, it's a bit like public speaking now. So, is there one show you can remember vividly that you did? Yes, I think doing the Gulf when we did the Rolling News Current Affairs program when the Second Gulf War broke out, and you know, as I say, by being senior, you got called in because you, they knew you wouldn't fall apart when everything went wrong and uh, it's stressful you know because the, the journalists and the presenters and the, and the producers are making it up as they go along and there's a lot of potential for, for screw ups and you know we used to joke that our job at the desk was to keep the thing on air while everybody else tried to take it off <laughs> <laughs> and trying to be nice and pleasant with them at the same time and uh, great fun um, Anything that you can remember that went wrong? Oh yes no, we, 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 haven't, we, we haven't got time <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Alright so I mean we, 
One of the things on your LinkedIn profile, is it talks about at the BBC, is about your digital mm. influence there. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, yes, because I, I moved back to Television Centre from Bush House uh, and became a manager in post-production at the time when computing-based editing systems were becoming a thing. And uh, I was asked to set up a unit to try and get our heads around those tools, cheap cameras, consumer kit that was becoming capable of doing broadcast stuff, all the sort of fly-on-the-wall documentary things. So we then set up a thing called Digilab, and just having that event venue place for people to get their heads around new things, and we managed it so that we pulled in a network of interested parties, and then that became used for all sorts of technologies. So we got involved in enterprise business systems technologies and explaining them to people and, and, and understanding. It was a real privilege, 10 years of getting to see everything from genius to rubbish in the tech space. And then while we were doing that, we realised that we could use the tools we were using on the internet like a bulletin board, uh, you know, pre-social networking stuff, to connect our network inside the BBC. And then that ended up growing to 24,000 people. Um, yeah, I remember because I was at Netscape, you know, you were one of the big advocates of RSS out there. Mm-hmm. The BBC was yeah, yeah. one of the influencers that really pushed that through. Yeah, I mean, the inside and the outside were different, and I wasn't involved in the external-facing stuff. But certainly at that time, the BBC attracted some just really interesting, smart people who mm. saw what was coming. Um, thank, sadly, they didn't listen to them, uh, and they all left. Um, so the Beeb suffered a bit from that. But uh, no, my focus was internally, pretty much. So when you, I assume you still look at and listen to the BBC occasionally? Not really. Oh, okay. I was going to say... Do, well, that's do, not, do, that's not do, fair, you, I should explain. Uh, that. Well, I was going to ask, do you look at the way they use technology now and, and, and do you think they use it well, you know, given, given that you saw the inside out, now you're on the outside looking in? I have a friend who I hope's not listening to this who's occasionally trying to get me back in um, because you said they still don't get digital. Right. In the sense of what appeals to me, you know, I wrote about this recently, what I love about podcasts, for instance, is the fact that I can hear unmediated, sometimes rambling, but I take that um, conversations between smart people, working stuff out, disagreeing. I get them. I hear them disagreeing. I hear them reversing their opinions, all this sort of stuff. And so I find the intermediated, professionally produced podcast that the BBC tends to put out, just I can't listen to them anymore. Okay. And it's, so it's that getting in the way of what interested me so the, what interested me about the internet was us taking back our storytelling yeah and yeah. I look back on my career feeling slightly guilty about having industrialised storytelling which with all the consequences about stereotyping and pressures to conform and what's fancy what's, what's, what's you know celebrity culture all those sort of things that, that I don't think I've done as much good um, and also made people passive consumers of information and, and stories rather than sharing them and creating them themselves. So that was what appealed to me about the internet, and it's because of that that I find it... You know, I'm a big Strictly fan as well as... Uh, <laughs> as I know, I'm sorry, Sam. Love Island and Strictly. Uh, well, that's pretty much... <laughs> if, if, I sit, if I find myself sitting down and sticking with some television, it's almost always BBC4. Right. And a documentary, and, and, and some of those are fabulous, but, but that's about it. Yep. So I'm going to slightly, because it's a topic I wanted to talk to you about anyway, which is, <clears throat> you know... We, we're seeing my children, I guess yours may be the same because they're similar ages, um, you know, Netflix generation, mm-hmm. the uh, binge watching, uh, Amazon Prime, we, we know Apple's working on a massive yep. uh, investment into content, uh, Walmart just announced that they're about to do this, so we're seeing a lot of American um, yep. content creators, content distribution. Yeah. Um, how are we doing in the UK, do you think? Are we, are we just going to be watching American content in our future? Is that it? Is that all we can expect? And given the comments we made earlier about America and the way it's heading and uh, 
So most of the podcasts I listen to are American. Yeah. Interesting. But you'll be glad to know this will be podcast. And we are, <laughs> we are going to be starting a UK-focused podcast, which is what this is going to be. Um, yeah, no, I do a podcast myself. I mean, I think there's lots of stuff out there that's really good. But I think, in, you know, the, the challenge is that they're so good. I mean, some of the Netflix, the things like The Crown was just fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it takes a lot of money to be that fantastic. But I think there have been investments into one or two good programs. I mean, you know, Downton Abbey was very good. And yeah. I think some of the Sherlock stuff. Yeah. So I think... Yeah, I'm, to be, you know, let's be fair. I'm not giving, you know, I'm, I'm not writing off the BBC. You asked me my perspective. Of Absolutely, because yeah. you've, you've worked there. I haven't, so, yeah. and you've got a... But it's tough because, you know, they, they have a lot of legacy stuff, clearly. It's in the press all the time uh, to deal with. Um, and in some ways, their greatest strengths are their greatest weaknesses. And uh, I'm not sure I see them dealing with that. Do you think the TV licence will stay Given, given the binge watching and online cable cord, so in my household, literally, we could stop yeah. watching terrestrial TV. Yeah, likewise, uh, and even Sky to a large degree, because apart from some of the sport, I don't think there's much that Sky is producing. So that's interesting, because I mean, I, I think in some ways Netflix is a subscription model. Oh uh, no, it is I, a I, subscription so, so model. I've, but so I've advocated that for all sorts of things for a long time, in the sense that I would pay. I, I used to talk about iTunes for journalism which is what RSS gives you. I can yeah. assemble a playlist of smart journalists. Yep. I kind of don't care which institution they work for, but I trust them to tell the truth. Exactly, because they'll move to another institution. That's, exactly, and I'll follow them rather than the institution. Yeah. So I think that shift, and I think people are becoming I think maybe more aware that you need to pay for stuff for it to keep going. And I think micropayments, are, you know, they've been around since the start, and it's never quite been cracked. But I think... Why not? I don't know. I think it's just that there's a, there was that everything on the internet's free mentality which still prevails um but i think are we beginning to realize advertising as a I was model gonna, I, I was just going to say advertising comes with a big cost hey, well <laughs> and even, even things like instagram you know i understand their business model is based on advertising and i'm not saying change your whole business model because that's too big a risk at the moment but let me pay a premium if you know, i want to a fiver a month just to get those bloody ads out of instagram that pretend to be from my friends but there's some company that's trying to sell yeah. me something you know yeah. well I, I i'm moving back to the model where you know i would pay a small but the problem is once you start paying a small amount it goes up mm. it never goes down and so you're always going to then get a you know i look at i look at amazon prime it was 99 pounds yeah. now it's gone up to 105 pounds without even asking me for all this video that i don't want to watch yeah well yeah. you know it's it's seen as a bundled offer so yeah. um you know but i you know i'm now using amazon music unlimited my children still use Spotify, so I'm double paying for that. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm happy to pay for that yeah. rather than the free Spotify version with an ad every third That's track. Right. And so for me, going back into Facebook and saying, look, I'd rather I got everything from my close friends that I've yeah. tagged yeah. and I don't want your ads. Yeah. Facebook premium would be, I'd pay for that. Yeah. Twitter, I don't know, would I pay for Twitter? Would you pay for Twitter? I, it's funny because, you know, I was part of the early users of Twitter and, and loved it in the, in the early oh, days. Oh, in the early days it was brilliant, but, but that was I, only because there was I've a few not, of us on there. That's right, it was very select. Yeah. Um, but I haven't 
got a huge amount from Twitter for a long time now. I still get occasionally I dip in and out, but you know, I, the days when I used to follow it, yeah, uh, you know, so. religiously. Picking and, uh, up on stuff. I mean, it, it, it's a great place still to find out news. I mean, I don't read newspapers or listen to the radio, so no. uh, if I find out things, I'll dig into Twitter and find out more about them, and it's good for that. Okay. We're going to play another track now before we run out of time. This is uh, Shining You Crazy Diamond, Pink Floyd. What's this remind you of then? Sitting in that darkened room, contemplating being a teenager. <laughs> I think I did that to Phil Collins in the air tonight, but... Yeah, that too. <laughs> that was my one. Anyway, Pink Floyd, something that I must go back and listen to. I've never listened to The Dark Side of the Moon. That's, really? That's so bad Sam. of me. I know. Anyway, here you go. Enjoy.
See, I've never listened to <laughs> Pink Floyd and Dark Side of the Moon. Little, little did I know there was a five-minute intro to this. <laughs> And I'm just oh, casting my professional radio eye over. Yeah, I've just been started. castigated with. Why didn't you check it out first? Um, yes, as the good bit cuts in, but I'm sorry for that. But I want to find out more from you, so we're going to leave it in the background, <laughs> simmering away. So after the BBC, where did you go? Uh, well, I left 12 years ago, and that was partly because enough people had become interested in what we were doing with the internal social network that I became confident I could. Uh, I could make a living at it. I also got a hefty push from the beep, so that helped. Okay. Um, but then ended up being very lucky. I've spent 12 years travelling around the world, working with all sorts of fascinating organisations, everybody from BP to, as I said, United Nations, NATO, World Bank. And how, how did you just luck on that? Did you just go, oh, I fancy doing this next, and it happened to land on you, or did you plan Pretty much. it? Pretty oh, okay. Much. No, I mean, in the, well, and it's partly the power of blogging, uh, in the sense that I'd been writing about the issues, writing about my insights as to why things happen the way they do, and that's still mostly how I get work. Um, people who've noticed me writing about something, and, you know, that ideology of algorithm things is hopefully leading to me doing a conference in Ottawa and Canada in a couple of months' time, you know, so it's... Uh, and it's, you know, it's my natural curiosity. I like uh, finding out about stuff. It's why I'm into the AI and the blockchain these days as well, just working out, hmm, is that interesting? Why is that interesting? Is it worthwhile? And then seeming to be reasonably good at explaining it to other people who are maybe less, uh, have less time or less inclination to dig into these topics. So, um, okay, so what is the future then? Well, well personally? Or? No, well, for you personally, you know, uh, okay, let's cover that in two well, parts. No, that's, no, that's a fair point. No, you know, is 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 this this is this it to retirement? You know, walking the hills and podcasting, blogging, and doing conferences, or is there another? Well, this is, <laughs> this is funny because I I haven't made this public yet. Uh, oh, but um, da, 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 da. I'm not even sure if I should. Not like <laughs> people care, but um, I've just signed up to get my class one HGV license. Oh. I'm Just the, as autonomous trucks come in. Um, well, that's the point. I mean, I'm in the process of going through the, the the tests and things at the moment, and I've always fancied driving trucks, and I'll watch big, long trucks reversing into Waitrose and marvel at the skill, and oh, I fancy doing that. And um, apparently, because of people assuming it's going to be automated, nobody's going into it as an industry, so there's a real shortage of drivers. And the guys who run the school, they also do an agency. And he said, it'll work really well with your lifestyle. If you're not travelling around the world waving your arms at people, I'll ask you to drive a big truck down to the south of France and back. And I thought, I'll do that. That sounds good. Fair enough. Okay, we've we've run out of time. <laughs> the, 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 the hour and a half we have always seems like it's going to be loads of yeah. time and then you run out. Um, we're going to end up with Adagio for Strings as mm-hmm. your final song. But uh, it's my job now to launch you on the car from Elon Musk into sure. space. You're off to Mars. Uh, you've got your iPad. Really? I have to. Yeah. Um, you've got one track of the ten. You might not have played it. Which track would you take with you? Well, if, if we'd heard it, Sailor Nuclear Diamond. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the one that I didn't play fully, or even partially. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a book. What book might you take? Oh, a book. You've got the Hitchhiker Guide to the Galaxy in the glove compartment. Okay, I met him once. Yeah. Um, oh, I didn't know you were going to ask me this. That's just hard. There are so many, so many books. Uh, probably Stephen Batchelor's Buddhism Without Beliefs. Okay. And uh, any app that you might want to put on your iPad that you've got with you? Drafts. Drafts, okay. Without a second thought. <laughs> the best writing app for getting ideas out of your head. 
Yun, thank you very much for today. It's pleasure. been a pleasure. You've been the best guest I've had so far. Oh, you say that to all of them. <laughs> Strangely, I <Yeah>. do. <laughs> no, I have. I've genuinely all enjoyed that. Nice, you really <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 one of those things. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long oh, time, and it's been wonderful to find out a little bit about you. It's it's a fascinating world that you live in. You know, I touch on the edge of it hmm. by following you on Facebook, but it is wonderful. You know, we're both on the. Uh, post-50 uh, side of life. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. a lot more post-50 than you are, <laughs> But I, I do think that, you know, um, the world is really exciting still. I yeah. think we're only beginning. I think it's changing. Some of it's scary. I mean, we talked about the changing lifestyle of the, mm. the work environment. Um, I've, I don't do corporate life for 10 years. I, I've enjoyed mm. being away from it. Um, but yeah, let's find out how the world's going to change in the next 10 years. I hope you come back sometime soon. We'll Love to. Um, we're going to go out, as I said, on the dash over strings. Next up, though, on Marlowe FM is the Afternoon Gold with Andy J, and it's the 70s that we're going to be covering. But enjoy this very mellow, and I do know this track, and I love it. So I'm going to shut up, say thank you once more. Thank you for listening, uh, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sam. That was amazing.